how to convert values in case space into an actual image. Well, we use the Fourier transform equation. Again, Fourier transform equation will convert the values from the case space into a picture. Let's talk about case space and how it relates to image. Comparing that with my example of the cell phone camera sensor versus a DSLR sensor. Now imagine the case space, it's two dimensions, so X and Y, and that just looks like a square, which is the sensor on the camera. It's basically a square and the or rectangle in the X and Y dimension. Within that rectangle, it is filled with millions of pixels. And so let's talk about an eight or 12 megapixel sensor. So it has megapixel, that's the number of pixel that it has. Each pixel represents a voxel. On MRI, pixel is a voxel for MRI. So now we're still talking about the same sensor. And if we're talking about 12 megapixel sensor on a camera and a cell phone, now the number of pixel on both both sensors is the same, but we know the DSLR sensor is much bigger. So the area occupied with each voxel or pixel is bigger. How does that relate to imaging? Relates to imaging that the signal to noise in that area is going to be much better than the smaller phone pixel. And that's the really the main difference between a cell phone camera and DSLR camera, even though they have the same pixel, that the signal to noise is so much better because each voxel or each pixel, it's much more data. Similar thing in the case space. Case space is the sensor. The sensor is made up from voxels. Each voxel size, the number of voxels determine the resolution, but the bigger the voxel, the more signal to noise ratio that we have within that image. So if we keep that in mind, then we'll talk more about it and come back to this analogy again and again. Let's now talk about the dimension of a voxel. So if we want to know the dimension of a voxel in the Y space, a voxel has a dimension in the Y and K space, and we want to understand what is that. Let's think of our sensor example. The sensor represents the K space, and the sensor is made up from megapixels or voxels. Each voxel, when we add it up, gives us a field of view. The field of view in the Y direction is how much we can see or how many voxels are in the Y direction. If we want to get the number or the dimension of each voxel, we take the total field of view in that direction, be it the X direction or the Y direction, and we divide it by the size of each voxel, and we will get the number of voxel. If we want to get the size of each voxel in the Y direction, we take the total field of view, and here we want to get the size. So we take the total number of field of view in the Y direction or X direction, doesn't matter, and then we divide it by the number of voxels and we get the size of each voxel. Now, a tricky way of asking the total dimension of a case space is by giving us the dimension, the maximum dimension in one direction, let's say the X or the Y dimension, and telling you what's the total width or length of the case space. Now, if you imagine our example about the pixels and the sensor that we're talking about, now you have to put an X and Y axes in the middle of that sensor. And so your total length in the Y direction is Y distance multiplied by two, because as much as we went up, we go down in the negative y-axis. Same thing for the positive x-axis. The way we travel in the positive x-direction, we have to travel that same distance in the minus x-direction. 
So the width of K space, let's say the X gradient or the Y dimension, it is two multiplied by the maximum distance in one dimension. So let's say you have a five voxels in the X direction, the total X direction length or width of the K space is 10 because you have 10 voxels on the positive, uh, five voxels positive, five voxels on the negative. And so the total number of K space is 10. Let's take a break from the K space and talk about how to speed up spin echo sequences. Remember how we said spin echo takes a long time because you have an RF pulse in the 90, 90 degree RF pulse, then you give a 180 degree refocusing pulse, then you get the echo, and then you give another new RF pulse, 90 degree RF pulse at TR time, and so on and so forth. So that takes a long time. There is another way to speed up acquisition, and it is done by giving multiple refocus impulses. And those multiple refocus impulses, meaning multiple 180 degree refocusing pulses for each 90 degree pulse. So we give a 90 degree RF pulse, and then we can give multiple refocusing 180 degree pulses and get multiple echoes, which will generate signal. And that is the concept of turbo spin echo. So turbo spin echo, single 90 degree RF pulse and multiple 180 degree refocusing pulses. And for each refocus pulse, we get an echo and that's how we gather data much faster. Another way to speed up the acquisition is by doing half or partial filling of the K space and you assume symmetry of the K space at that point and you can acquire faster. Again, this is not ideal imaging. If you really want the best resolution, you have to do each step at one time, but those things are not realistic. And with computer algorithms, we really get excellent images without having to wait as much. So given what we just talked about, the fast spin echo or turbo spin echo, what is the total acquisition time for a fast spin echo? Echo. For a fast spin echo, the equation is the standard equation for regular spin echo, which was TR time multiplied by the number of phase encoding steps multiplied by number of excitations. This is all standard, but then it's also multiplied by the number of slices because we are obtaining multiple slices divided by the turbo factor. The turbo factor is the factor, the fact that we're getting multiple 180 degree refocusing pulses for each 90 degree pulse. Again, the turbo spin echo or fast spin echo time is TR time times phase encoding gradient, which we said that is each row on the phase encoding space or the y-axis, and then number of excitation, which is how many times we fill, we repeat over and over that row to get better signal to noise ratio multiplied by the number of slices meaning number of slices we need to get for that patient and divided by the turbo spin factor the turbo spin factor is what speeds up the image because now we can get multiple slices for each 90 degree rf pulse now let's talk about MR spectroscopy or magnetic resonance spectroscopy or MRS. This depends on the fact that each proton will resonate based on its surrounding structures. Because of that, we can use that structure and image a single slice and just monitor for the resulting echoes or the resonance frequency emitted by the content of that voxel. The units for 
Magnetic Resonance Spectroscopy or MRS is parts per million. These units are independent of the magnetic fields. What is the standard dosing for MRI gadolinium? Standard dosing for MRI GAD is 0.1 millimol per kilogram. Again, 0.1 or 0.1 millimol per kilogram. This is the same thing for breast imaging, and it's the standard MRI dosing of gadolinium. Review from prior, what is the effect of gadolinium on T2? Gadolinium shortens T2, and we said before, T2 shortening, meaning T2 dark signal. Gadolinium also shortens T1, but T1 short indicates that it's T1 bright. So it shortens both T1 and T2. Anything that is T2 short is dark, and anything that is T1 short is bright. What is the precession frequency of hydrogen proton when the in a three Tesla magnet? So in a three Tesla magnet, the precession of hydrogen is 42 times the magnetic field, which is three Tesla. So it's 126 megahertz. What is the T1 relaxation time of water? The way I think of it is I know water on T1 imaging is dark. And we said anything that is T1 short is bright. So water is going to be long on T1. Now what about on T2? What is the signal characteristics of water? Well, we know anything that is T2 bright is T2 long. So it is long on T2. Now let's talk about fat. What about fat? So T1 relaxation of fat is short on T1 because fat is bright on T1. What about T2 relaxation of fat? T2 relaxation of fat is long because it's T2 bright. So fat is T1 short and T2 bright. That's why it's bright on T1 images as well as T2 images. Water is T1 long and T2 long. That's why it's only bright on T2 and dark on T1. Another review from a couple of episodes back regarding axes of the MRI. Let's say you're given an MRI slice of the brain and you're asked to label what is the y-axis and what is the x-axis what we need to know is y-axis refers to the phase encoding gradient or phase encoding axis and frequency encoding axis or readout axis is the x-axis. That's number one. Number two, phase encoding axis is always the shortest axis. So you look at the brain and what is the shortest distance from one edge to the another edge? That is your phase encoding axis. And then from that, the x-axis will be perpendicular to it. The z-axis is basically along the length, so you cannot get it in that same slice. It would be the next slice is the z-axis. Now, since we talked about the phase encoding axis, we said phase encoding axis is the shortest axis, meaning shortest portion of the image is labeled as the phase encoding axis, and it responds or corresponds to the y-axis. The way they can ask this or test this fact is by telling you that, for example, you doubled the field of view along the frequency encoding axis. So 
you double the field of view along the x-axis. If you did not change anything, by what factor is the frequency encoding steps have changed, or by what factor did the imaging time have changed? And the answer is it will not change or will change by a factor of one, meaning nothing has changed because phase encoding step is really what determines all the parameters that we need to worry about. Again, to repeat that concept again, phase encoding gradient is the slowest part of obtaining an MRI image. Because of that, the frequency is so fast that usually changes in the frequency encoding gradient are considered insignificant compared to the phase encoding gradient. So doubling the field of view in the frequency encoding gradient, while it can create artifacts, it does not really change significant parameters in terms of the number of frequency encoding steps. Remember my analogy about the case space and the sensor of a camera? Now we're going to have a question that will test understand in this concept. The question would come along the lines of what happens to the voxel if the field of view is kept constant, but we increased the matrix size. When What we mean by increasing the matrix size is increasing the number within the matrix. The matrix is the square. Let's think of it in the sensor. So field of view is the sensor. So so the sensor size is kept constant and we said the sensor is made up of millions of pixels and here we increased the matrix size meaning we increased the number of pixels so what happens to the size of each pixel so if the field of view is constant and we increase the number of the pixel while keeping the field of view the same each pixel now or voxel is smaller. So the voxel size have decreased because the field of view is the same. If, for example, we increased the field of view and increased the number of matrix size, it can either stay the same, increase or decrease depending on how much it changed. But since we kept the field of view the same, so we're talking about the same size sensor. So basically we went from, let's say, a six megapixel sensor that is one inch square. We went from six megapixels, say we went to 12 megapixel. Each pixel now occupies less space on the sensor. What is echo train length? Remember, the concept of MRI is really different names for the same concept, and this is something that we already talked about. Echo train length is essentially the turbo factor. And we said for fast spin echo, for each 90 degree RF pulse, we use 180 degree refocusing pulses. So we use multiple of refocusing pulses for each 90 degree RF pulse and that tr gives us the echo train length meaning a train of echoes from using each of the 180 degree refocusing pulse so it's the number of echoes acquired for each TR or 90 degree RF pulse is called echo train length and they can range from 4 to 4, 64 or 32 echoes based on the imaging technique that we use what type of fat do we see in the in and out of phase imaging sequences? We see intracytoplasmic or microscopic fat because macroscopic fat would not have water mixed with fat in the same voxel, so it would not display the in and out of phase properties that we talked about previously. Again, in and out of phase imaging detects intracytoplasmic fat or microscopic fat. 
on a pulse diagram, what is the key difference between a gradient echo sequence and spin echo sequence? So a spin echo pulse, we said the key hallmark is the 180 degree refocusing pulse, which comes after the 90 degree RF pulse. And gradient echo imaging, we do not have an RF pulse. So we have basically RF 90 degree pulse. And then we at TE, we get the echo. RF pulse 90 degree and echo. There is no refocusing pulse. And while this speeds up the imaging, there is a penalty for that. And we will discuss those later. Let's talk about the concept of surface coils. What are surface coils? Remember, MRI is all about sending an RF pulse and detecting that pulse. So we have transmitting coils and receiving coils. And if we think of coils are either a speaker or a microphone. Surface coils tends to be a microphone, meaning it's picking up signal. And why it's surface coil? Because it's put close to the surface. And the benefit of having that coil close to the surface, it will pick up even tiny signal and will improve signal-to-noise ratio. The problem of that is if you can imagine a microphone, so you can have either a omnidirectional microphone, which will pick up sound from any place in the room. So you can have one microphone in the room and it will pick up all the sound from all over the room. Or you can have a unidirectional microphone, which will pick up the sound from one part of the room. Obviously, the benefit of unidirectional microphone is better sound quality because you have to speak in that direction so it will not pick up the noise from all other parts of the room. Now a multi-directional microphone it will pick up the signal from all over the room so it will pick up both signal and noise and that's the same concept with the surface coils. The surface coils are basically microphones put on the surface of the patient so they will pick up the signal. The problem with them if the signal come from slightly far away from them there will be a significant drop off of the signal that that microphone or that surface coil will receive. The problem with having a single microphone, meaning not a surface coil, just the standard receiver coil, that it has to be very sensitive to pick up signal from all over the body. And so there is an increased noise associated with that.